In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So Team Grace, we are in ordinary time. And again, ordinary time is all about what? Exactly. And we know discipleship first, of course, our own relationship with the Lord. But we also know that we belong to a community of faith. So we discern the discipleship of the community. This has led the bishops of our country to call us to a national Eucharistic revival. To look at our own Eucharistic faith, our Eucharistic devotion, and to seek to go deeper and to show even greater love and faith to our Lord's true presence in the Eucharist. In order to observe that during ordinary time, during this National Eucharistic Revival, here at Our Lady of Grace, we've been following a homily series on the parts of the Mass and the portions of the Catechism of the Catholic Church on the Eucharist. Last week, we talked about the Catechism. This week, I want us to go back to the parts of the Mass. But a few questions to help get our minds focused. To whom is the Mass offered? God the Father, exactly. And is there only one sacrifice of the Lord Jesus? Yes. Exactly. One historical sacrifice offered over 2,000 years ago that is mystically, powerfully made present by the power of the Holy Spirit at this altar during the Catholic Mass. During the Catholic Mass, are members of the baptized able to be a part of the Lord's sacrifice? Yes. Absolutely. And that's the real spiritual work. That's why we come to Mass, in order to participate in the sacrifice. So the baptized, we have to make sure that we're very attentive, that we're aware of what we're called to do. We are a part of this sacrifice, which means we must be focused and realize what we're doing, intentionally participate in the Lord's sacrifice. Now, in terms of the Catholic Mass, how many main parts are there of the Mass? Four, Four exactly. What's the first part? <laughs> the introductory rites, and that's just getting everything set and ready to make sure, okay, we've refocused our minds, we're, we're, we're here, we're attentive, we're aware of what's going on. What's the second part of the Mass? Liturgy of the Word means the Lord's teaching us. So the Lord is speaking to us. We're not simply reading ancient texts from a previous era, but the Lord is speaking to us by the power of the Holy Spirit when the scriptures are proclaimed during the sacred liturgy. What's the third part of the Mass? The Liturgy of the Eucharist. And that's where we are in our series right now. And what's the fourth part of the Mass? The concluding rites, exactly. All right, so let's go to that third part of the Mass, the Liturgy of the Eucharist. And in our walk through the parts of the Mass, we're actually in the Eucharistic prayer, also known in the Eastern churches as the Anaphora. And this is the prayer that the Lord is offering to the Father, during which the sacrifice will be represented or made present during the offering of, of, of those prayers. So the Eucharistic prayer is the heart, the highlight of the entire Mass. All the other parts of the Mass are very important, significant in their own right, but the Eucharistic prayer is the heart. That is the main part of the Mass. And greatly, uh, very much uh, here at Our Lady of Grace, we take a great effort to focus on just that first Eucharistic prayer. It's the oldest of all the Eucharistic prayers and the most esteemed. It's the one preferred by the church, and so it's the one that we use here at Our Lady of Grace. Because we use this prayer so consistently, we're able to walk through it. You see, if I was always changing Eucharistic prayers every week, you would never be able to develop a spirituality and awareness of the Eucharistic prayer. So by having just the Roman canon, that first Eucharistic prayer, we're able to get used to it. I also am particularly fond of the Eucharistic prayer, the first Eucharistic prayer, not simply because of its ancient nature or its sacred nature, but also because it actually allows me as a priest to pause and to allow you, the baptized, to exercise the authority given to you in Christ. So I can pause, so you can remember your loved ones who are living, it allows me to pause in order for you to remember your beloved dead. None of the other Eucharistic prayers give me that option. 
And I can't create something. I can't add something to the Eucharistic prayers. I do not have that authority. So the first Eucharistic prayer allows that. And I like the fact that you have this opportunity as members of the baptized. You're not trying to cram in your prayers during the different parts of the Mass while, and, and the Eucharistic prayer while it just keeps moving. That allows for that pause. And as we have grown in our liturgical awareness, have you noticed that the pauses are getting longer? Those of you who are actually exercising your baptism, you appreciate that. In fact, some of you have reached out to me and said, could they be longer? That's when I know that the Holy Spirit is moving, right? And of course, some of us are still working on it. Maybe you're a little antsy, like what am I supposed to be doing? There are so many people to pray for. In fact, if you're a young Christian, we get to that second part of our beloved dead, and thanks be to God, you don't have a long list of people to pray for yet. And remember all the people, the general groupings of people, those who will die today and are not prepared, those who have died from drug addictions or alcohol addictions, that they might have reconciled with God before their death. Remember the people who are resting in our parish columbarium. So there are groups that we can begin to pray for if our list right now happens to be shorter. And in a fallen world, I assure you, your list will continue to grow. Right? Meanwhile, those of us who are middle-aged, those of us who are older, we have a sufficient list, don't we? <laughs> and we're the ones who want that pause to be a little bit longer. So the first Eucharistic prayer is very important. And again, it's uh, for many reasons uh, preferred by the church. All right, let's go back to that first Eucharistic prayer. If you'd like to open up in your credos to page 17. And I remind you that the credo is always available to you. And Mother Church encourages you, emphasizes, and wants you to follow along in the Eucharistic prayer. Because you, the baptized, are part of this offering. You are a part of the Eucharistic prayer. Priests and people united with the Lord Jesus as he represents his sacrifice to the Father. All right, so then on page 17, we have the first Eucharistic prayer. And you recall that two weeks ago, when we were talking about the parts of the Mass, we were at that part, that first grouping of all the holy ones, and we stopped with the apostles. So, so far in that first groupings, we see the Lord's parents, Our Lady and St. Joseph, the Lord's apostles, which we went through, and now we see that second part in this groupings of holy, one, of holy ones. And let's pick back up there then. You'll see where it says Linus, Cletus, Clement. Let's talk about who these holy ones are. It's important for us to have at least a general awareness of who are these holy ones that we are constantly asking for them to offer prayers and supplications for us. Who are they? All right, so let's talk about Linus. Other than having a really awesome name, right? <laughs> I think we need a few more Linuses out there, right? So other than having a great name, we know Linus is the second pope. So after the death of St. Peter, Linus was made Bishop of Rome. And we don't know much about Linus other than the fact that he tried to immediately organize the charitable outreach of the church. That it was considered one of the preeminent tasks of the church to take care of the poor and the sick and the suffering. So Linus was trying to organize that within this massive city of Rome. We know Linus dies a martyr, and then the third pope is Cletus. Again, also a great name, right? And Cletus also dies a martyr. Do you realize, dear friends, that the first 33 popes all died martyrs? It was considered a death sentence to be elected the Bishop of Rome. And men sought after it. They wanted to be a Bishop of Rome. They wanted to die for the faith. And that's true of the Bishop of Rome, but honestly, in the early church, that was true of every Bishop. If you were made a Bishop, you knew that it meant that you were gonna die for the faith. There was a spirituality of martyrdom ingrained 
in the call to be a bishop. And men understood that, and they desired and wanted to be elected bishop so that they might die for the faith. This showed the intense love they had for the Lord Jesus and the keen awareness they had of the resurrection. So while it's true of all bishops, it was especially true of the Bishop of Rome. So we have Cletus, Cletus gets elected, and similarly we know he tried to continue the work of Pope Linus in order to expand and organize the charitable outreach of the church in Rome. And by organizing it in Rome, he called other bishops to do the same where they were assigned. Now we know that Linus's task and Cletus's task of charitable outreach was principally expressed through the deacons who played an essential role in the early church and by a growing group that eventually would be called the religious. So in the early church, it was the widows. The widows were the bishop's right-hand man because oftentimes when something had to be done, it was the holy widows who did it. The poor had to be fed, the widows would do it. The orphans had to be cared for, the widows did it. The widows did tremendous work. In fact, if you look even at Acts of the Apostles, the widows are revered and esteemed in the early church. So much so that the virgins, the young women within the Christian community, and we hear this reference, this call to celibacy in the second reading of our Mass today, that the virgins within the Christian community, many of them would see the widows and say, we want to do what they do. So then the virgins started working with the widows. And eventually that developed in what we now call religious life. So the task of trying to organize feeding the poor, helping the suffering, being of service to the sick, was led by the bishop, the bishop of Rome in this case, but really the ones who were there in the trenches were the deacons and the religious. So Cletus is trying to organize this. Cletus dies a martyr. And then after Cletus, Clement is elected. So look at this. We have the first four popes now. So Peter, Linus, Cletus, Clement. Now Clement's an interesting pope because while we don't have a lot of information about our early popes, because remember for the first three centuries of our faith, it was illegal to publicly be a Christian. If you declared the divinity of Jesus Christ, that was considered a capital offense against the person of the emperor. The emperor was God. The emperor guarded the pantheon of all the other false gods. So if you refused to acknowledge the emperor because you said there's only one God and God has become a man in Jesus Christ and that's the one you worship, then it was considered an offense to the emperor. And that offense was greatly punished. And so again, it was difficult to organize things in the early church those first few centuries. But while we don't know a lot about many of our early popes, we know more about Clement. Clement is the last pope mentioned in the New Testament. So after Clement, all the other popes are after the early apostolic era. Clement was a disciple of St. Paul. He's mentioned in Paul's letter to the Philippians. We know that Clement was ordained by Peter. Early on, when, when Clement came in service to the Church of Rome, he was ordained by Peter before Peter was martyred. Clement was very educated, had a keen knowledge of the scriptures. So we're not sure much about his backstory, but we know that he brought a lot to the office of the papacy when he was elected. We also think it's very significant because Clement was still alive during the Apostle John, but everyone deferred to Clement over John. Let me give you an example. The city of Corinth, which was always troublesome, it's a port city, it was always engaging in idolatry and moral licentiousness and sexual perversity. St. Paul wrote two letters to the Corinthians, which are in the New Testament. 
Later, the Corinthians cause more problems, and eventually, the Corinthians become so rebellious that they kicked out their bishop. The bishop and all the priests, they just kicked them out. Now, what's interesting is Corinth is in Greece, and just south of Corinth was Patmos, the island of Patmos, and that's where John the Apostle lived. But when the bishop and his priest got kicked out, they didn't go to Patmos, to the Apostle John. They traveled all the way to Rome, to Clement, the successor of Peter, in order to plead their case. And they told Clement what had happened. And Clement wrote a letter, which we can still read, his letter to the Corinthians, and it's severe. He says clearly, you will support your shepherd. How dare you appeal and fight against a shepherd anointed by Christ? If you are not with your shepherd, you are with the devil. And you will reconcile now and return to the true faith. Whoa, right? Guess what the Corinthians did? They repented and took their bishop back, right? Because Clement had spoken. Now, it's interesting, Clement's letter was so essential in the early church that it was actually discerned whether the letter should be in the New Testament. But the early father said, nothing past the second generation will be permitted in the New Testament. And Clement was the third generation. Clement's letter predates the Gospel of John. So it's an esteemed letter, still studied in theology, and you can still read the letter of Clement. So we see early on in the 90s AD, a clear exercise of papal authority and the deference by the entire church to the chief apostle, the successor of Peter. All right, so we have Clement. Clement dies also a martyr, and then we have the election of Sixtus. Now, Sixtus, ironically, <laughs> it was actually the fifth pope. <laughs> and there was a big debate over whether, did we just miss one? Did someone die early on in becoming pope? Or, and it's generally agreed, no, Sixtus really was his proper name. It just happened to be Sixtus is actually the fifth pope, right? And Sixtus, we also know, died a martyr. We don't know much about Sixtus. He followed a great pope, Clement, and we know that he continued the charitable efforts of the church. The mark of the early papacy was the intense effort to care for the poor, the sick, and the suffering. The church understood we proclaimed the gospel and then we lived the gospel. And that's how we convert the unbeliever. So, okay, dear friends, right there now, we have the first five popes, starting with Peter. So let's see if we can do this together. Let's read these popes. Peter, Linus, Cletus, Clement, Sixtus. Now, there's a big debate in terms of why does that initial list stop at Sixtus? And it's generally believed that, well, that part of the Eucharistic prayer of the Roman canon was probably written while Sixtus was pope. So it just stopped with the Pope who was currently leading the church. Okay, after that list, then we go to Cornelius. Cornelius is also a Pope, but he's a little bit later. He's in the mid-third century. And Cornelius was a great defender of the faith. This is about the time that we are nearing the legalization of our faith. Bishops are given a little more leeway, not much, but a little bit more. And there start to be intense debates over the identity of Christ. Is he true God and true man? And what does that mean? And Cornelius in Rome held the line, so much so that people revered him, respected him, because he had a strong heart, but a gentle hand. And so people loved that, and they said, we need to put Cornelius in the Roman canon. But Cornelius died, he was greatly grieved by the church. And so we don't know much about him, other than that he held doctrinal orthodoxy, but he was so well beloved that he was inserted into the list of the Roman canon. After Cornelius, we see Cyprian. 
So Cyprian now is the first person in the Roman canon who was not related to Jesus, who was not an apostle of Jesus, and who was not a vicar of Jesus. So now we read Cyprian. And who is he? Now we've actually quoted Cyprian before because he's quoted a lot in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Cyprian was actually from North Africa. Many Christians are not aware that before the Muslim invasion of the early 6th century, North Africa was a vibrant, vibrant Christian civilization. All throughout North Africa, massive Christian centers of learning. Alexandria, Carthage, Hippo, and the list goes on. All of them were wiped out by the Muslims in the early 6th century. But before that time, we see again a thriving church. Cyprian was one of the bishops of North Africa. He wrote a lot about the scriptures, wrote a lot of spiritual works. That's why he's preferred in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In the Liturgy of the Hours, sometimes we see quotes from St. Cyprian. He's used there as well. So a great defender of the church in North Africa. And he, of course, also dies a martyr. So nearing legalization, but not quite there yet. But St. Cyprian is one of our great uh, holy ones, our great bishops of the African continent. And then we go to Lawrence. Now, Lawrence was one of those holy deacons. Remember I told you that the Pope's efforts to, be, to, to exercise the charitable works was always the deacons and the religious? So, well, we've got the deacons. And so it shouldn't surprise us that one of those deacons became very revered to the heart of the Christians in Rome. And one of the preeminent deacons that really stood out in the hearts of the Christians was Lawrence. Do you know his story? So Lawrence is a holy deacon. He's in the catacombs with the Pope. The Pope is there. He's got like four deacons. They're celebrating Mass. And the deacons are going to go then and distribute the charitable alms. The imperial authorities come in. They drag the Pope and the deacons all out. They kill the Pope. They kill the other deacons. And they save Lawrence. And they tell him, listen, you go out and you get the treasures of the church and you bring it back to us. Because you see, the Romans thought that we were wealthy. Most of our forebears came from the bottom of society. But they tithed. They tithed. What did they do? Tithe. Yeah, they tithed, okay? <laughs> and because of that, we were able to be charitable. So the Romans just thought that we must be wealthy because who gives money to the poor? You must have so much money that you're just throwing it away. You're just giving that surplus out there and you just don't even care. Because at the time, no one supported the poor. The poor were ostracized. The sick were abandoned. You see, we have this Western mindset about caring for the poor, the sick, and suffering. We forget that all comes from the Christian faith. That didn't exist before the gospel and the Christian civilization of the West. So Lawrence is told, go out, get the treasures of the church. He goes, okay. So he goes, he gets the poor, the sick, the lame, the suffering, the widow, the orphan. <laughs> all the people that Roman society at that time would have considered garbage. Garbage. And he brings all them into the imperial authorities and... The authorities look and say, what are you doing? Why did you bring all this trash to us? Huh? And the deacon Lawrence says, oh, well, you, you asked me to bring the treasures of the church. And these are the treasures of the church. So the imperial authorities were so angry, they decided to, of course, take his life, but to torture him. They actually decided they were going to grill him like a hamburger, right? Now, Lawrence apparently had a great sense of humor because as they put him on the grill and they started burning him alive, he says at one point, uh, hey, guys, I'm, I'm done on this side. You can flip me over, right? And he dies a holy martyr. And that's the deacon Lawrence. All right, next we see that interesting name, Chrysogenes. Now, this is the first layman who's mentioned in the Roman canon. So other than, ha again, having a great name, and by the way, parents, I think we need a few more Chrysogenes out there, right? 
Wouldn't that be great? You know, we got like Linus, Cletus, Chrysogenus running around, right? So Chrysogenus, so he was a layman and he was a catechist. So just like on Wednesday evening we have our catechists, Chrysogenus was a layman who was a catechist. He helped teach the faith. He supported the local bishop. He just taught the faith. And he was outed as a Christian. He would not denounce Jesus Christ, and he died a martyr. So it's one of the esteemed laymen of the early church. Next we see John and Paul. Now those are two apostles, but the names of apostles, we know we've already talked about the apostles, so these were different men who just had the same names as the apostles. So John and Paul, different people than the apostles. We know that these were two brothers, and they were both military officers in the Roman military. Now, we may not be aware that our faith first grew in the Roman military. The soldiers of Rome loved the Christian faith, its intensity, its discipline, its call to a virtuous life, but also they were moved by the witness of Christians. Because remember the Lord tells us, if you're forced to go one mile, do what? Go a second mile, go the extra mile. Well, that's actually in the Roman law. Roman law says that a Roman soldier can go up to any subject of Rome and force them to carry their armor and their weapons that could weigh up to 60 pounds. They could force them to carry those for up to one mile. So imagine you're with your family and a Roman soldier comes over and gives you his armor, his weapons, and makes you carry them for a mile. It was utterly humiliating. And the Lord Jesus says, when they tell you to do that, go one more mile. Well, get this. Christians actually did it. And because of that, the Roman soldiers started paying attention to the Christian faith. What is this faith? This person will carry my armor and weapons for one mile and then go a second mile. As they were very moved by the Christian faith, and it was that moral witness that led to the conversion of many soldiers to our Christian faith. Two of them were John and Paul, brothers, military officers. They were outed as Christians after their conversion. They remained faithful, and they both died martyrs. All right, let's look at Cosmos and Damien. So we conclude with these two brothers, also brothers, possibly twins, and they were both medical doctors. In fact, they were called the penniless ones because as medical doctors, they would not charge for their medical services. It's a miracle, right? <laughs> they would go and they would find the last, the lowest, and the least. They would go on the other peripheries in order to find the sick who are mo were most in great need. And they would serve the sick and charge nothing. So they were Christians who took their faith very seriously. Incidentally, Cosmos and Damien, along with St. Luke, are the patron saints of doctors, nurses, surgeons, dentists, and those in the medical field. Cosmos and Damien were also eventually outed as being Christians, and they themselves also died martyrs. They would not denounce our faith. Okay, dear friends, that's the second portion of that first group of holy ones. And it's important for us to understand who they were. Now, right now, we just have names and, and brief summaries. But I need us all to understand that in the Roman Empire, if you were accused of being a Christian, all you had to do was go before the Roman authorities, take a little piece of incense, and throw it in front of the statue of the emperor. By throwing that little piece of incense, an act of worship, you were saying, the emperor is God, and as the guardian of the pantheon of the gods, I acknowledge all of these false gods. And that's all the Christians had to do. So it was either throw a little piece of incense, so simple, what could be perceived as such a casual act? Throw a little piece of incense in front of the emperor or be brutally tortured and martyred for the faith. Those were the options. 
and our forebears held the line. And we revere many of them in the Roman canon. These were early men and women who were known to the church. This is why they were added into the Roman canon. When Chrysogenes died, his students said, I remember when he taught me about Jesus. And I saw how he stood and he shed his blood for him. We can look at these names and allow them to become just names, but these were real people just like us. They had fear and anxiety. They had the will to survive just as we do. But they were willing to submit all of that to the lordship of Jesus Christ and they would not denounce him even if it meant brutal torture and death. Even if it meant being fed to to live animals and turned into human torches. They held the line. They acknowledged and lived Jesus Christ as Lord. What about us in in our discipleship? How many of you are throwing the incense, huh? You see, it's interesting is that little incense could have saved their lives. And we have many Christians today who are willing to throw the incense just out of respectability. There are Christians who are willing to denounce Jesus Christ and his gospel just to save face. Because they're worried about the opinions of their neighbors or their co-workers or their extended family. They're willing to denounce Christ for the things of this world. The holy men and women that we will hear about in the Roman canon, the ones that we have referenced today, these holy men, they held the line. They stood up for Jesus Christ as Lord. They would not throw the incense. In our lives, we have to assess our own discipleship. Have we thrown the incense? Do we need to repent? Are we willing to hold the line, to stand up for what is true and right and good and noble and beautiful? Are we willing to show by our actions that Jesus Christ is Lord? We will not throw the incense. We will remain faithful to the gospel. We will hold fast to Jesus Christ as Lord. The holy men and women throughout the Roman canon, and wait till we get to the second group is when we hear about the holy mothers of our faith. These holy women and holy men, they stand to us as examples and models, and we can turn to them and ask for their help. That's why we ask their intercession during the Roman canon, because they held the line, and we're called to hold the line, and we need their help their spiritual friendship, their supplication. So as we now walk through the Roman canon and we get to that first groupings of holy ones, Our Lady, St. Joseph, the apostles, and these early martyrs, you now know who they are. And you can ask for their help. So as you go out in the midst of the world and our world tells you, just throw the incense, you'll denounce that. Denounce false worship. Denounce compromise. You will hold the line. And you will show by your actions that Jesus Christ is Lord.